0: It's so Well, good evening. I hope everyone is doing well and having a wonderful week. We are continuing a series that we began last, or oh, no, we didn't begin last week. We continued last week uh, entitled uh, The Church Defined. And uh, ever since uh, Easter in the lead up to Pentecost, we've been focusing in on the church, uh, different aspects of the church. So our first part, we looked at what the church is, and we looked in Scripture about uh, what exactly is the church, and we said that the church was the body of Christ, that we are the church. The church is not the building, but it's the people uh, that make up the church. And then we saw last week where we looked at um, uh, the purpose of the church, and we saw how the purpose of the church is to glorify God by loving others and by and by making disciples of people who then go and make disciples, and as we we looked through that, I hope it gave uh, some clarity on um, what the church is, what the church is supposed to be about, and we also looked at some reasons why churches sometimes fail at glorifying God glorifying God and making disciples of others and so I hope that was a blessing to you and I said last week that we were going to be talking in our next part uh, to this week about uh, the uh, the history of the various traditions within the church. And so today I want to share with you five uh, popular traditions within the church and kind of chart the history of why some of those things came about, how some of those things came about. And I'm really excited to share this with you. Uh, Many of these are really interesting uh, really fascinated on how these developed I found many of them very amusing it's um, it's quite entertaining to, to see uh, how these things came about I hope that you'll enjoy that I will say at the outset um, some of these traditions that we are going through I, I I will joke around with them I'll laugh a little bit with some of them I sure I'm sure you will as well but I, I just want to be clear I'm not poking fun at any of these traditions I think it's wonderful uh, the history of why we do things in the church, and I've always found it fascinating, so that's why I wanted to share with you. So I hope that no one takes offense as we kind of work through some of these and we kind of uh, laugh and cut up with uh, some of the traditions that the church has adopted over the years. So with that said, the first one that I want us to take a look at are pews. I don't know if you've ever thought about it before, but pews are a really interesting thing uh, that, for the most part, is unique to churches. Now, not all churches have pews. In fact, in recent history, um, uh, many churches have moved away from pews. They've moved away from these benches that are fastened to the floors of the church, and they're moving now towards uh, individual stackable chairs that they can move in and move out that way. A particular room isn't just uh, utilized once a Week on Sunday for worship in the sanctuary, but many churches are now getting to the place where they are able to remove those chairs, stack them up, and then have multiple uses and um, functions for that particular room. And so uh, I don't know if you've ever wondered about how did we get to the place where churches so frequently use. Pews. Well, it, it may surprise some of you to, to know that church pews didn't come about until around the 1500s. That when the Protestant Reformation occurred, that's when church pews really started to become a thing. And so there was a, a long period of history, uh, several hundred years, where... Th- Where church pews weren't a thing. In fact, what most churches did is there would be an open room and people would come in and they would just stand. It was just people standing around in a vacant room where uh, they would then participate in the worship services. And the worship services up to that point, up to the uh, the 1500s, was very much more participatory. That meant that uh, people were engaging in different types of rituals and, and worship uh, activities and things of that nature. in in the synagogues, the Jewish synagogues, which the church sprang out of as it started off very Jewish and then became more and more Gentile, uh, the Jewish synagogues were very much um, a discussion, a participatory where, uh, people would ask questions and dialogue with the rabbis or with the, the pastor or priest or, or whoever would be, um, conducting the worship service. And then when it went into more of the, the Gentile, uh, realm, there was a lot more, uh, engagement and, um, and discussion and prayers and moving up and down. If you've ever gone to a, a Catholic mass, you, Probably seen that quite a bit where there 's standing up standing down, and there 's a lot of moving walking out, going in and participating, maybe in taking communion and then going back to your seat. You moved around quite a bit, but when it came to the Protestant Reformation, there was a a new uh, emphasis on hearing and listening to the Word of God being proclaimed and preached and so how it originally started is there would be uh, a stone bench around the outside of the room along the walls in the open area of the the front would be pretty much open to move around. But people would sit around the outside of the wall and listen. And you can still see this in some very primitive churches, some Quaker churches. Uh, A lot of times they'll still sit around uh, the, the perimeter of the building. And eventually, as things continued to progress, those benches began to move inward, and they were fixed as you see them nowadays in most churches, where they're all facing forward, facing the pulpit, which oftentimes is into in the center of the church, because that is where the focus wanted to, uh, needed to be in those Protestant churches that were focusing more on preaching and teaching uh, the Word of God. And so that, that's uh, where a lot of that came from. Now, the word pew comes from a Dutch word word, uh, a pewie, uh, which is an interesting word. It just basically means an enclosed front area of the building like a town hall where important important proclamations were proclaimed. And so uh, that's where the term pew came from. It was this place where anyone and everyone could gather to hear proclamations. And that was the emphasis on the hearing part of uh, the church service. Now, eventually, uh, when they had these pews uh, first put in, It was very much assigned seating. You had certain seats that you would sit in, and uh, this was determined oftentimes by churches renting or selling the pews to the parishioners. And so when you came to church, you would most likely have a pew that you're either renting from the church or that you paid money for. And you literally owned that pew. Uh, Some of you have probably either heard about or, unfortunately, I hope not, experienced a time where you've come to church, you sat down, and someone taps you on the shoulder and says, you're sitting in my seat. Well, that was literally the case back around the 1800s where uh, people literally bought or rented out the pews. And the wealthiest people, and those who were highest on the social uh, uh, ladder, They would have the front pews. Those were the most expensive pews, and those were the pews that were reserved for um, uh, the most social elite at that time. And then as you went back, they were cheaper, and eventually you get all the way to the back of the church, and that is where um, they had some free pews that people could sit in. And as uh, you sat in those back pews, um, sometimes those were for the guests, those were for the visitors, which, again, I guess the, the people who uh, were over these churches, they never read Matthew James 2, where it talks about favoritism in the church. Um, but these were places for the more downcast in society. And then in, in, in some extreme situations, you would even have balconies. And that's where, uh, you know, often uh, those who were uh, slaves, they would stay in the the balcony, or maybe even out in the foyer and and still be able to listen in. And so, uh around that time, uh you would have just all kinds of uh segmentations within the church. In fact, I remember going to Williamsburg, Virginia, and there I was able to see in this uh, particular church it was uh Burton uh, Parish church there in Williamsburg, Virginia, and you actually could see where George Washington owned this pew and Thomas Jefferson owned that pew over there and so it's really fascinating, but that's kind of where um uh, Church pews came from. Now, eventually, I think it was around uh, the 1940s is when churches stopped doing rent and, and selling of pews. And I know that sounds wow that was that wasn't too long ago. And that's right, it wasn't too long ago. Uh, but that's kind of the history of pews in modern day churches. Now that brings us to the next point, and these two are kind of tied. The the, the the pews in the churches, as well as um, the passing of offering plates. That's the the next tradition. And I don't know if you ever thought about it, but why do churches collect offering the way they do? Why do we pass offering plates down uh, the, down through the pews and then the ushers take it and they go through each uh, individual pew and and why do churches do that that way? Well, again, that's not the way it normally went about. In fact, um, for the most part, most of church history, all the way up until around the 1800s, uh, there were um, there were state established. Churches and state-established religions. Originally, especially if we look here in America, there was the Church of England before the American Revolution. There was the Church of England, and that was the church in the colonies at that time. There were uh, some churches here and there that could uh, that could worship freely, but for the most part, the Church of England was predominant in the uh, the British colonies here in America. And because of that, churches didn't collect tithes; they didn't collect offerings. Uh, People could still give freely to the church, but the church's revenue was primarily through the taxation from the government uh, and then given to the churches. And so the church wasn't um, dependent on the generosity of those members within the church. And it was commonly understood and argued at that time that churches are a benefit to society, that society can only function, a good society can only function if its citizens are of good moral upstanding character, and churches foster good moral upstanding character. Therefore, societies should um, should fund and support uh, churches that are building up good citizens. And so for that reason, uh, most Most governments would fund the local church, and so they didn't need to take up offerings. But that all ended around the time of the American Revolution uh, going into the 1800s because at the American Revolution, uh, there was, again, this um, supposed separation of church and state. But initially, that didn't even happen here in America when uh, we gained our freedom from England. There were still states that had state-run Uh, churches. And so the federal government wasn't mandating and taxing people and then giving some of that to the churches, but there were state churches. In fact, in uh, North Carolina, uh, the the main church here in North Carolina was the Anglican Church, which is kind of an offshoot, a a variation of the Church of England, but it's a denomination uh, that is still prominent here to this day. And then you'd have other churches like Georgia and Florida, and they would have uh, maybe Baptist churches or Presbyterian churches or whatever they may be, and uh, that was the the official religion of that particular state. Now that didn't change until around again the 1800s, and that's when things um, there was a complete separation of church sponsored or um, state sponsored churches, and so at that point around the 1800s. And that's when churches really had to start figuring out. Okay, if the state is not going to be giving us taxes to help keep the church um, going and keep the building maintained and all of that, what are we going to do in order to make sure that people um, are giving and so that the church continue continues to function? Well, again, as I said earlier, they look to the pews, and so that's when they started uh, uh, charging for the pews paying for the pews. People would own a pew and they would even, uh, if I owned a pew, I could put it in my will that that would then be inherited uh, to my children and things of that nature. They also started auctioning off pews to where once a year uh, they would have a church auction and you could uh, bid on your particular pew that you wanted uh, to bid on. Uh, So that's the way some churches were able to uh, continue financing uh, themselves after the state no longer uh, collected taxes for the church, Uh, but then uh, another interesting way that churches were um, collecting tithes and collecting offerings and and supporting itself is they had what was called a subscription book. Now, this is really good. This is one of the ones I found most interesting. The subscription book would be a book that was held in in the front of the church, and in there was a list of all the members of the church, and next to it, they would list um, what each church member was to... uh, had agreed to um, contribute for that particular year. And so each year, they would pass the book along. You would come to church service, you would sit in your particular pew, and then they would pass uh, this book along, and people would sign it. Or you know, some churches, you would go up to the book and sign it. And as you're doing so, not only are you seeing what you're contributing, you're seeing what everyone else is contributing, they're seeing what you're contributing. And so it was just a really interesting dynamic, and that's how churches for a long time were uh, uh, collecting. Collecting uh, tithes and offerings and things of that nature to support the church. And eventually uh, that again uh, passed away as well. Uh, People eventually started getting to the place where instead of going and signing a book, you would just, as you were leaving or as you were coming in, there would be a box. You would put your tithes and offerings in there and then you would come to worship or as you were leaving you would put in there before you left. And eventually it got to the place where uh, it was being put in a plate and then before too long it was being passed around. And I've heard stories, I've never experienced this myself, where the plate would be passed around and they would look through it and they would see whether or not it was enough to fund the church. Uh, and the needs of the church. And if it wasn't, they would pass the plate around again, and they would continue doing so until uh, all the ties were were taken up that they needed for the church to continue to function. Now, again, that's changed over the years as well. Just like with the pews, instead of passing offering plates now, a lot of churches are doing online giving, direct drafts, things of that nature. So this is something that is always changing, always moving, and things like that. And, and what I find interesting as we look through the history of a lot of these things These things have not been around for as long as we think they have. Many people think that tithing has always been around. Pews have always been around. But many of these things are actually fairly recent, which isn't to say that they're bad or that they're good. They just are the way the church is functioning right now. And so uh, those are very interesting. Now, The the third um, uh, tradition that the church does that, again, I I, um, was greatly intrigued by is invitations. You know, whenever you come to church and there's a worship service, uh, usually after the preaching, many churches have the pastor either in the pulpit or come down front and then there's some music played and people are able to come forward either to the altar or talk to the pastor. And there uh, they can pray. Sometimes they can join the church. Sometimes they can Uh, uh, tell everyone publicly that uh, they have chosen to follow Christ, whatever it may be, any kind of decisions that are made, oftentimes uh, it's during that invitation or during that altar call that those things are happening. But again, even that is a fairly recent thing that hasn't always been the case. Not all churches throughout church history have had invitations or altar calls. In fact, this is one of the church traditions that are, are more recent than the others that we've uh, talked about. In fact, altar calls and invitations didn't really become popular into the 1930s or 40s. And so this is within the lifetime of uh, maybe some of uh, older people who are, are still alive today. Maybe you are familiar with people like Um, uh, uh, D.L. Moody, um, uh, Charles Finney, uh, individuals like Billy Sunday, and and surely all of us have heard of Billy Graham. These are individuals, and many of them were primarily evangelists, who went around and they would um, do a revival, and then they would have an altar call at the end of the revival, and uh, this is when a lot of people would make public decisions. And it was seen as a really good thing because these are people who are making an immediate public uh, decision for Christ. And so it, w- it was very um, good for them to go ahead and make the decision then instead of waiting because, again, we're not promised a- another moment in life. And uh, if they were to make a decision right then and there and make it publicly, they were more likely to continue to follow through uh, with their commitments and with their faith. And so that was a lot of what was going around during those revival meetings of the 1930s and 40s. In fact, many of them were tent revivals. <clears throat> and a part of walking um, to the altar, doing the altar, call or the uh, invitation was called walking the sawdust sawdust trail because a lot of those tent revival meetings, uh, uh, there was sawdust on the floor and as people went to uh, the the altar call, that's kind of where that name uh, got its Um, where that got its name from. Now, this was very controversial in many places within Christianity during that time. In fact, there was an author, uh, John Nevin, who wrote a book called The Anxious Bench. And the reason why he titled it The Anxious Bench is because a lot of these uh, revival um, preachers and a lot of these pastors who were doing these altar calls, they would have this bench up front. And if you were feeling anxious, if you were feeling the tug of the Holy Spirit, if you feel like God was speaking to you, you're feeling that conviction of sin, they would invite you to come forward and not to the altar, but to this bench called the anxious bench. And you would sit there and you would pray. And sometimes people would pray over you. And sometimes the the, the preacher would really focus in on those who are seated there at the anxious bench and really kind of uh, preaching to them And so uh, John Nevin, as he was writing this book, uh, kind of criticizing the altar call and the invitation and the anxious bench, this is what he said. He said, Spurious revivals are common, and as the fruit of them, false conversions lamentably abound. An anxious bench may be crowded where no divine influence whatsoever is felt hundreds may be carried through the process of anxious bench conversion, and yet their last state may be worse than their first. And so essentially what he's saying there is, you may get a a high degree of emotion in the midst of these revivals and these church services, and people come down, they're sitting at the anxious bench, or they're making a decision, they're professing faith in Christ, or professing to to get rid of the sin in their life, but as they are doing so, maybe the Holy Spirit's really not moving in. They're just getting their emotions ramped up and they they make a false profession of faith and then they go back to their old lifestyle and yet they do so with a clear conscience because they feel like, well, I prayed you know, a prayer back then, or I went to this crusade or whatever it may be, and so I know I'm saved, so I just keep on living my life. And so uh, people like John uh, Nevin, he was really worried about that type of false conversion or false show of faith uh, with this invitation. Uh, And so there was a lot of criticism. There was so much criticism. In fact, there were some Baptist uh, revivals and church services that were going on, and the preachers would preach against some of the other revivals going on that were utilizing invitations and anxious benches and and altar calls and things like that. In fact, there was a quote from one Baptist preacher who said this, that we need to stop this uh, heresy or God needs to smite the leaders of these holiness meetings. Now, when he's talking about holiness meetings, he's referring to the Pentecostal and holiness churches that really leaned into these altar calls and and, um, invitations because that's where they were doing a lot of their healing and people were speaking in tongues and things like that that. And so there was just a lot of controversy um, revolving around this. But eventually... Uh, people began to get more accustomed to that. They saw true life change happening, especially when Billy Graham steps on the scenes and he's having these he, these um, very populated revivals and lives were being changed. And so eventually, um, it began to be more mainstream in a lot of churches. But that's kind of the the foundation and the, and the starting point of what we know as church invitations today. Now, the second, uh, I'm sorry, the fourth, the fourth thing uh, that I want us to look at as far as church church traditions is Sunday school. Now, again, most of us are probably very familiar with Sunday school. You come to church usually before church service. You go to a Sunday school class. Usually they're uh, age striated where, you know, children go to their classes, adults go to their classes, and it's been a fixture in many churches for many, many years. But that's not always been the case. In fact, uh, um, Sunday school started back around the 1800s. I know everything starts out around the 1800s, but during that time was also the Industrial Revolution. And when the Industrial Revolution was going about, uh, most people were working incredibly long hours in factories and things of that nature, not just adults, but children as well. In fact, um, around, I think it was around uh, 1802 was the, the first um, law passed to help um, children limit their work hours, it limited them, get this, it limited a child's work hours in the factory to 12 hours a day. Now think about that. That's a limit. So imagine what they were doing before that. And so for six days a week, 12 hours every day, most children were working alongside their parents or they're working in the factories or wherever it was in some capacity. But um, they did have Sunday off. And there was one pastor in England who, uh, as he was visiting, some friends, uh, Robert Rakes, as he was um, visiting, he saw uh, there in the streets a bunch of children who were cussing, they were gambling, they were fighting, they were just living just a completely ungodly lifestyle. And he asked one of the women there as he remarked uh, about um, these children, he asked, what's going on here? And she said, you think this is bad? She said, This is nothing. Uh, I find this interesting. She said, quote, that um people couldn't even read the Bible in peace at church due to the chaos caused by these children. So get this. Here's this woman who's complaining that while she and other churchgoers are trying to worship on Sundays, these kids who are working in the factories all week long and they're not going to church on Sunday, they're out in the streets and they're causing such ruckus that we can't read our Bibles in peace. And so uh, this pastor was so bothered by that, he, he was thinking these children need to be in church and they need to be educated so they can get out of the factories and have a good life for themselves. And so what he decided to do is he was going to start up what, what eventually became the Sunday school. And at that time, it wasn't just um, digging into Bible stories. It was literally a school that met on Sundays. Most of these children were very poor. They couldn't afford higher education. They had to go straight into the workforce. And so this pastor, he decided, you know what, on your day off, on Sunday, if you'll come uh, to the church, we will educate you on reading, writing, and arithmetic. We'll teach you how to write, how to read, how to do math. And we'll do it all around the Bible. They would copy verses of Scripture. They would memorize Scripture. They would learn to read Scripture. And that's how they would begin to learn. And so every Sunday after church, from about 1 to 5 in the evening, uh, he would teach these kids. And this began to grow really quickly. In fact, other churches began hearing about this, and they began incorporating it into their life because the factory bosses began seeing a change in the children, and so much so that even many of the adults who couldn't read or write began coming to Sunday school, and they all met together. Children and adults all met together in one classroom, and they would begin learning these basic skills that many of us uh, take for granted. And uh, as they began doing this, around the 1920s, uh, Sunday school had become so popular, that most churches were doing it and they also began incorporating sports into the Sunday schools. And so this is where you get a lot of church leagues where they're playing baseball or they're playing football or whatever it may be. Uh, They started playing sports there uh, in their Sunday school. Now, eventually, um, there came to be passed the national education system that we know today. Public schooling uh, began to be introduced, but it was introduced because they saw such a, a benefit from this widespread education going on through the Sunday school hour. Well, as the national education system got set up and public schooling got started, uh, that's when Sunday school began to focus exclusively on religious studies, Bible studies, uh, religious training uh, for pastors and for priests and things of that nature. And so that's kind of where... Um, Sunday school came from. That's how it's kind of morphed into less of school reading, writing, and arithmetic, and more into just straight Bible study. And so uh, I find that incredibly fascinating. Now, the fifth and final thing that I just want to look at, and we won't spend much time on this, honestly, because there's not a whole lot of information on it, but I still find some of the, um, the theories as to what's going on here Uh, fascinating, and that is on church steeples. I don't know if you've ever wondered, but steeples seem to be uh, something that is just for the church. You don't see it on a lot of other buildings, this tall pointed structure kind of identifying churches. Now, as I said, no one really knows definitively where this tradition began, uh, but some of the um, theories is that some people think it's from Egyptian obelisk. Now, if you've seen an obelisk, you know the Washington Monument. That's an obelisk. Uh, You've probably seen it in some cities. This is a very um, old form of monument structure. It was often used in religious um, connotations. Sometimes it was brought into temples and stuff like that. So some people think that that's where uh, the modern-day steeple comes from. Um, some people point to that uh, as a hypocrisy of the church, that the church has incorporated these pagan religious symbols, uh, you know, and, and Canaanite cultures. It was the Asherah poles. Um, a lot of times, people point to that, saying, "Oh, look, you know, here are these silly Christians worshiping under this steeple, and the steeple is actually a pagan symbol." I, I'm not confident that that is actually where the steeples came from. Uh, some point to it being uh, a, um, a way to uh, that started around Constantine in 313 uh, uh, AD is when Christianity became an official religion of the Roman Empire, and some people think that that's where uh, steeples began b- to be very prominent. It was something to draw everyone's attention, not only to where the church is, because it stood higher than all the other buildings because of the steeple, but also it directed everyone's attention not to the temple itself, but to God as it pointed up to God and a most steeples have the cross at the top so oftentimes it was the tallest building tall above everything else the cross was elevated above everything else and uh, oftentimes eventually it became where there would be a bell put in the steeple to draw everyone's attention to let people know when services were coming oftentimes that is where the city would gather for town meetings and things like that everything centered around the church and so uh, a lot of people think that's kind of more of the origin of the steeple but in the end we don't really know. We don't know how it began, but the main uh, thing is that now the steeple is kind of a fixture of the church to identify the church as opposed to all other secular buildings and things like that. But even that's beginning to change in our culture today. Um, fewer and fewer churches are half steeples, more churches are looking more like warehouses uh, than traditional churches. And I'm not saying that's good. I'm not saying it's bad. Uh, I'm just saying that things do change. Tradition does change. It's important for us to know where those traditions came from. It's important to know why they're here and and whether or not they still um, serve a purpose and, and Uh, to know where we're going in the future. And so I hope that was a blessing to you. I hope that as you think through some of those things, uh, it gives you a, a new insight into why your church looks the way it does, acts the way it does, Um, And I hope that God um, blesses you uh, through that. Now, next week, we're going to be looking at denominations. Denominations are the different types of Christian churches that are out there. And we're going to look at why are they so different? Why are there so many Christian churches out there? Why are they so different from one another? If we're all the body of Christ, why can't we all worship together? So we're going to dive deep into that and see what those differences are all about, whether or not they're significant or whether we're just making mountains out of molehills. So I hope you'll join us again next week as we continue to look at what defines the church.